As we begin our reading in John chapter 4 and verse 43, it says, After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, which is 1 p.m., the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea into Galilee. You know, this last week we went down on Wednesday and picked up three of our grandkids. We had them until yesterday. There were some highs and lows through the three days. At one point, I think it was Thursday, I was talking to Titus and I asked him, I said, so are you having a good day? And he said, oh yeah, he was having a good day. He said, in fact, he says, I think today is the biggest sugar intake of my entire life. (laughs) Our grandkids have been blessed with a grandma with a sweet tooth and one who likes to make her grandchildren happy. So he was pretty thrilled with the amount of sugar he was getting to take in that day, and he had his eye on a little bit more as the evening was going to progress. The next day, when it was getting towards evening, we were going to go out fishing and stuff, and we noticed that Titus was kind of curled up on the couch under a blanket, and and we noticed that he was a little bit lethargic that day. And so we asked him, and said, are you feeling very well? And he said, oh, he's got the chills. And and so we kind of felt his forehead a couple times. At first he felt normal. Then he felt a little bit warm a little bit later. And so we figured he was catching some kind of bug and said, we'll leave you back at, at home with Grandma and, and you can stay on the couch. And later on we got back from fishing and Titus was up playing Monopoly with Grandma. She's a trooper. And it came time, the kids had been promised root beer floats that night. And so she gets out the stuff to make root beer floats and said to Titus, you're probably not feeling good enough. You probably don't need a root beer float. And Titus is like, oh, I'm feeling pretty good. He had a root beer float with the rest of them as well. And a little bit later on that evening, he said, I'm not feeling too good anymore. And then he went into the bathroom and he never did end up throwing up or anything, but he's standing in the bathroom and he's kind of moaning and kind of miserable. And he looks out to us from across the house there and he says, this is the worst night of my life. (laughs) And so in this one trip, it had a really high point for his life and a really low point for his life, all encompassed into one visit to Grandpa and Grandma's. We can cram a lot in three days. (laughs) But the reason that I tell you that now is because that's kind of what we're coming across here. Jesus is coming back into Cana. And if you remember the previous trip into Cana, that's where he did the first of his miracles. He goes to a, to a wedding. When you think about it, a wedding is one of the greatest days in our life. Well, this time as he goes up into Cana, he's going to have another opportunity to minister, but this time it's going to be on the opposite end of things. This time a man is going to come to him with the looming death of his child. And as he comes to Jesus, this has to be 
one of the worst days in this guy's life. And so we see in Cana of Galilee that Jesus comes and participates in one of the best days of their life and is there for them in one of the worst days of their life as well. That's one of the neat things about Christ. He's not just there for our good days. And He's not just there for our bad days either. He's there for every element and every part of our life. Well, as we look down through this passage, there's two things really that stand out for us to look at. And they're not unfamiliar to us. In fact, it's the same two things that he points out when he tells us what the purpose of the book is. And it's the same two things that are often reiterated down through the book. The title that we're going to have on our sermon this morning could really be applied to just about every part of the Gospel of John, but it does stand out in particular in this situation here today. If you remember, the purpose of the book is listed for us in John chapter 20, and verses 30 and 31. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And so his point is that Jesus would perform many signs, and the purpose of the signs was to point people to Christ. would be to bring people to a saving knowledge of who Christ is. And so you have the sign itself, and then you have... The purpose of the sign is so that they would believe, which is a word that he uses some 80 times throughout the Gospel. The main principle is just its just believe. Just believe. That's the goal of this passage and the passage before it and the passage before that. And the whole Gospel of John is to bring us to the point of a solid faith in Jesus Christ. We've got to see Nicodemus be steered toward that faith. We've got to see the woman of the well come to that faith. And now we're getting to see this Gentile man be brought to the same conclusions in this passage, and that is that we need to believe. It's not a miracle on 34th Street kind of a belief. It's not a believing against reason. It's, it's believing because there's plenty of reason. In fact, the signs are evidences of the reasons to believe in Christ. And so he is striving to bring us to that point. Now, as he does that, I notice that he, he, he focuses on the quality of two things. The first thing that we see is the quality of the sign. Remember, all through the Gospel of John, the miracles that Jesus does are called signs. That's significant. A sign communicates something. A sign points to something. Well, when Jesus was doing miracles... It wasn't a show. It was a sign. Communicating that what? That before you stands the Son of God. Before you stands the Savior of the world. And within this passage, that's one of the things that is emphasized is the quality of the sign. What I mean by that is the sign is sure. The sign is demonstrable proof of who Christ is. It's measurable. Right? The guy measures it. Upon Christ telling him, your son will live... Go ahead and go home. He gets up and he leaves. And when he gets close to home, the servants see him coming and they come out to meet him on the road because they know he'd be anxious about knowing what the case of his son is. And they come and they say, hey, you can relax. Your son's fine. And what does he do? He measures the sign. He says, tell me, when did, when did this happen? When did he get better? And they tell him, they said it was yesterday at the seventh hour. So one o'clock, that's when his fever broke. And he knew that one o'clock is right when he was talking to Christ. Right when Christ would have told him, your son lives, all of a sudden his son's fever broke, and he lives. That's the point. 
You look in the Bible and the, the signs were verifiable. They were proof of who Jesus was. You know, they, they weren't like today. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't do miracles today. In fact, I think I've been a beneficiary of at least one of them. There was a time dealing with my, my son Daniel uh, and uh, heart problems when he was first born and stuff. And, and we ended up taking him, rushing him off to a specialist. And they saw a valve in his heart wasn't quite right. And they're telling us what's going to happen, to happen down, the, down the road. And I, we asked him, I asked him specifically, is this any chance this will go away? It will mend on itself? He says, no, no chance of that. About 12 years old, he's probably going to need a surgery. And we went back home, prayed at our church fervently, and prayed in our family fervently. And when we took him back, uh, I think it was a month later, to get checked up, it was funny to watch the doctor look around with that ultrasound. Could not find the valve problem anymore. And he's like, well, I don't know what happened, but it's gone. And I thought, I know what happened. But that's very different than having like faith. I don't believe that they're normative, and we'll get into that in a little bit. And so I don't think that miracles are part of like everyday life. I don't think it's the normative way that God takes care of things. I think that's why you, you see that the apostles starting out uh, doing miracles and bringing healing to people. But by the end, you have Paul telling Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach's sake. Or telling in James to gather and pray for somebody that is going through some weakness. I think that that was for a time and it faded out, but it's not normative for today. But that doesn't mean that God can't heal or, or, or interact in, in, within the course of events in any way that He wants to. I would not presume to limit God in, in that way. But what we do see is we see that those miracles, they are like a neon sign. They're really undeniable. This guy's son is at the brink of death and then the fever breaks and he's fine. When did it happen? One o'clock. Same time I was talking to Christ. We look through the Bible, we see all kinds of things like that. That there's, that there's just really no arguing around it. And believe me, they, they tried to. When you think of the healings and stuff and the miracles that take place in the Bible, Jesus takes one boy's lunch and feeds over 5,000 people with it. Right in front of them. Jesus... Heals the person. And when you see somebody get healed in the Bible, it's, it's not like they even need therapy afterwards. There's a guy that's paralyzed and his friends have to carry him in on a little stretcher. And afterwards, Jesus tells him he's healed and says, now pick up your stretcher and go home. Later on, when Peter and John meet the beggar along on the, out in front of the temple when they're going in to pray, and Peter heals the beggar, it says, what does the beggar do? He jumps. He leaps. He praises God. He's walking and leaping. Instant. Healing. You know, I remember reading a, a book years ago about the kind of the healing movements that we see in our day. And I learned some interesting things about it. They said one is you're not actually allowed just to go forward in healing in those services. They set up a tent usually or they come ahead of time with a crew and they interview people ahead of time to tell them whether or not they can be healed. I remember reading one specific example of an older guy living in a dimly lit cabin that his only complaint was he couldn't see his Bible well enough to read it anymore. And they took him in front of a, the huge crowd under the bright lights and put John 3.16 in front of him and asked him to read it. I'm sure the guy could have quoted it without reading it. They made some false statements about him being completely blind, which he wasn't. And then they celebrated the fact that he'd just been given sight and sent him home. He came back the next day said, I got home to my cabin. I couldn't, still couldn't read my Bible. My eyesight didn't change. They told him, well, you must not have enough faith or it would have stuck. They found that in studying these kinds of movements that most of the things that people are healed of are psychosomatic illnesses. In other words, you can't really tell if they were healed or not healed. 
I myself met somebody that was paraded up on a stage one time. And they had AIDS and they were paraded up on a stage and told to give their testimony and to claim it. Name it, claim it. Claim healing through faith that you're healed. And he looked at me in tears and said, I'm not healed. But the crowd got their moment to celebrate. You know, in the Bible, that's not what you find. You don't find somebody on a TV screen saying, somebody somewhere has cancer and you're relieved of that right now. Who can measure that? How do you verify that that actually happened? But you know what you see is these miracles that were signs that were pointing to Christ and there was no way around the sign. They were easily verifiable. You know, in fact, when you get to the book of Acts and the leadership is trying to decide what to do with these apostles after they'd healed the guy outside the temple and then preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ and they're trying to get him to stop preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 4.16, the leaders say this, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. They said, we cannot deny this. Something absolutely happened. This guy that's been crippled and sitting out, think about what that would have been like. Everybody that's been going to the temple to pray for how many years has walked right by this guy. He's like a piece of furniture in their community. He is a permanent fixture and they know him and they know who he is. And they've seen him for years sitting outside out front begging. They've given to him over the years to help to provide for him and his needs. And all of a sudden, this guy is jumping, walking, leaping, praising God. These guys say, look, this notable miracle has happened and there's no, well, there's no denying it. We can't deny it. They, they tried to deny it when they were dealing with Jesus' ministry. In fact, in John chapter 9, we're going to learn about an event where a person that was born blind was healed and was given sight. It says in chapter 9, verse 18 through 23, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that it is our, this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. He tells them exactly how he was given his sight. Who gave him his sight. When he gave him his sight. But they don't want to believe that. And so they're trying to find a way around it. And they ask him again, how did it happen? And he says, look, I already told you. How many times do I have to tell you how it's happened? Are you going to become his follower now too? Is that why you want to know? Because he'd already given them all the details. This guy's starting to get frustrated because they keep asking him over and over how it happened. What are they doing? They're trying to find a way around the miracle. They're trying to find a way to discredit the miracle. To say, no, it didn't really happen. They couldn't do it. And they're frantic because people are beginning to follow Christ and believe in Christ and they don't want that to happen. And so they're trying to put an end to that, but they got this miracle staring them right in the face. That's why the signs are there. The signs are there as a neon sign to say, look, this is the Son of God. Believe in Him. You should believe in Him. You can believe in Him. That's the whole point of the Gospel of John and that's His point in this passage right here. One of the things that He focuses on is the quality of the sign that was a demonstrable proof that demonstrated 
that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is that Savior of the world, and you just need to believe. But not only do we see the quality of the sign, but we also see the quality of the belief. If we look in verses 43 through 45, it says, After two days, now the two days, remember he was in Samaria, right? Because he meets the woman at the well, Samaria, and then she gets the townspeople to come out and they believe in him. And then they ask him to stick around a little bit longer and to teach them. So he sticks around for two days. So after the two days, then he leaves and he goes up north into Galilee. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. Why? For Jesus Himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. You know, we, we have a saying for that kind of thing. What does it take to make somebody an expert? 50 miles. You've got to get 50 miles away from home, then you can be counted an expert because home always sees you as little whoever you were when you were growing up, right? That's what Jesus is basically saying. Is He's saying, look, the prophet is accepted except for in his hometown. That's the tougher crowd. But it says, so when He came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed Him. Now, wait a minute. What does that mean? He, he's accepted, but not in His hometown. But the, when He goes to His hometown, it says that they, they welcomed Him. So did they honor Him or did they not honor Him? Because it looks like it's saying that He's not going to be honored there, but then it looks like it turns around and they do honor Him, or at least they welcome Him. You know, it's a little bit can seem confusing at first till you understand what the last part is. The last part is, it says, "...having seen all that He had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast." Now, the feast, we've already been there. It was back in John chapter 2 when Jesus went to the, to the Passover feast. When we look back at chapter 2, verse 23 through 25, this is what happened. It says, "...now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing." But notice what it says next, "...but Jesus on His part did not entrust Himself to them because He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for He Himself knew what was in man. The point was, the people were getting all excited about Jesus and the miracles that He performed. But was it a genuine faith? Or was it an enthusiasm for the show? Looking on the outward appearance, what does the Bible say? It looks like they believed. But Jesus, looking at the heart, knows... That that's not he's not he's not convinced. There's an excitement about the miracles, and and many times you see this in Christ's ministry where people start following him for the show, start following him for the miracles. Often at times like that, Christ would come out with some hard sayings, and a lot of the crowd would just leave. And he would turn to the disciples and say, "Are you going to leave?" And they say, "Where would we go? You have the words of life. We're in." And so you would have to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. That's what's taking place. So when he goes back to Nazareth, is he honored in his hometown? Not really. They're not trusting in him. Are they excited because they had been to the feast and they saw them do the miracles? And now the hometown boy's coming home and he's going to do some miracles here too, maybe. And so the, the show's back on. Are they excited about that? Yeah. Yeah, they're glad to have the show come to town. It's good for business. Are they genuinely putting their faith in Him? Not so much. You know, most of the commentators that I read in studying this passage, they point out, you got to stop and think, are the people, are they seeking the show, the signs, or are they seeking the Savior? 
The signs are meant to bring us to the Savior. The signs were never there for our entertainment. The signs were to point us to Christ. This is the very thing that Jesus points out. We recognize that there are people that they're welcoming Him because of the signs that they saw when they were down at the feast, but not genuinely trusting in Him. Jesus points that out to them. You require a sign. You won't believe without a sign. Now, it's interesting because the guy whose son, he's come and he wants his son to be healed. The guy who comes and says that Jesus said to him, you require a sign. You won't believe without a sign. But actually, he's kind of he's using the situation to talk to the whole crowd. In fact, in verse 48, it's going to use the word two times. It says, you require a sign before you will believe. And both of those times that he uses the word you, it's plural. It's not singular. It's not talking to one person. It's plural. He's talking to the whole crowd. And he's basically what he's telling them is, look, you guys just came for the show. You've welcomed me to some extent, but not to be your Savior, not to repent of your sins. You just want to see the show. You're excited about the miracles. The guy just says, you know what? Look, my kid's going to die. I think in, a, in a one sense, he's kind of caught in the middle of this. But in an important sense, because you know what? His tragedy is also his opportunity. Because it's often tragedies that open our eyes to God, that, that make us realize that we have a void, that we have a need, that, that there's something missing in our life. It's often tragedies that wake us up to that. And in that tragedy, there's always an opportunity to find Christ or to find a closer relationship with Christ. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to do is He's going to use this event and the sickness of His Son to bring this man to a saving faith. That's why when we pray for people, we pray that God would meet those physical needs, that He would bring healing, that He would bring recuperation and recovery and goodness and blessing to those people. But we also tie it to something spiritual all the time. That God would also in that make His presence known. That He would either bring that person to Christ if they are not trusting in Him already, or bring them to a deeper level of understanding in Christ and sense of His comfort in that situation as well. Because every tragedy is always also an opportunity. And that guy is at a point in his life where he's just, he knows what he needs. He needs his son to live. You know, I remember a time in our life that was similar. I remember we had had some friends over when we were in Oatana and the kids were playing and those adults were visiting and, and Leah was only about like two years old and one of the kids was being goofy and took this garbage can out of the bathroom, which was empty and clean. But she took it and put it on like it was going to be a hat. It was just a little garbage can, hard plastic, and it fell off her head. And Leah was standing next to her and bonk right on the top of Leah's head. Leah kind of shook it off and went about playing. We didn't think about it much. And then pretty soon she'd come kind of whining and climb up on Lisa's lap and then get back down and go play and come back whining again. She came over to kind of whine at her mom and she just tipped over. And we got up and ran her to the hospital and we're at the hospital, and it was like you were watching her go away. When she fell down in front of the couch, she couldn't stand back up. And we took her to the hospital, put her on the bed, and she couldn't sit up. And she couldn't hold her head up. And it just looks like she's fading out, like she's leaving. And it looks like she's fading and fading fast, and we're scared. And the doctors, we told them what, everything that's happened, and they're watching it. And at that time, our assistant pastor from our church, he heard of it, and it was in the evening he came down to be with us and to, and, and, and to wish us well and pray with us and stuff. And he kind of takes me aside and he says, he says, Greg, you know, 
Sometimes God allows hardships to come in our life and we don't really know why, but God can be trusted. And I'm thinking, I know that. I'm not having a faith crisis here. I know that God's here. I've already been talking to Him. I'm not having a crisis of my faith. What I'm having a crisis in is motivating the doctor. I said, I know that. Thanks for coming down. I appreciate it. And then I left. I turned from him and I beat feet over to the doctor who's standing by the nurse's station. And I said, okay, what are you doing? And he says, well, we're just kind of observing her. I said, let's find a better way to do that. you got to have some tests. you got to have something that you can do to start figuring out what's going on. I'm watching my girl, my little girl, fade away. Let's figure it out. And so they said, okay, well, we can run this test. They start running tests. Now, to be fair to the doctors, they were probably doing the right thing. The test didn't resolve anything. They didn't show any concussion. But best as we can tell, she did have a concussion. And uh, a little bit later, she's able to hold her head up again. And we, we took her home. They said, there's really nothing we can do. We think she's going to be fine. We took her home. Went to the Weinbergs because they were like family to us. And you know what? For a little while, all of a sudden, you know, she could, she could hold her head up and she could sit up. Then she could stand up. We watched her kind of in fast forward, learn how to walk again. But you know what? At the moment, what <laughs> what did I want in that whole thing? I just I just wanted her. I wanted her to get up off that bed and be fine. And that's what this guy wants. Jesus is confronting the whole crowds and him too a little bit, saying, "Look, are you just here for the show?" And he says, "Look, I'm just here for my son. I just want my son to live." And Jesus looks at him and says, "Your son's fine." Now, without all that, would that guy have come to faith? But Jesus used the opportunity to reach into the lives of other people and shake them concerning their faith and reach into this guy's life and shake him concerning his faith. And you know what we see? We see this guy respond in an, in an awesome way. The other crowds were seeking just because of the, the signs. In fact, in, in John chapter 6, notice in verse 26 through 30, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. This is after he had fed them. He said, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him who he has sent. Jesus was taking them right there at that moment and saying, you know what? What you need isn't the signs. What you need is the Savior. He's saying, you know why you're really here? Because you ate the bread and you were filled. Something was missing in you and I satisfied that thing that was missing. And he's trying to wake them up to this and draw them to himself. And he's saying, look, I'm the satisfaction that you're looking for. I'm what, what met your hunger. I'm what you need. And what is their response right at the end? So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may believe in you? What work do you perform? <laughs> right back to the signs. It's like they're just locked on those signs. And that's why in John chapter 12 and verse 18, it says the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. And that's talking about when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And so these, you've got these people that are just locked on the signs. They need to be locked on the Savior. That's what they need. And you know what we see? We see in this, this uh, official, we see that he seems to get locked on the Savior. Because what is the final outcome? Is that he, he believes. And then not only does he believe, it says his whole household, which would have been his servants and his family members, they believe too. So it looks like it brought him to a point of saving faith. You know who they ended up more like, which is ironic? Who they ended up more like was the Samaritans. 
Because the Samaritans, remember what the Samaritans responded to? The Samaritans weren't given any signs other than the fact that Jesus told this woman what her whole life history was, having never met her before. In John 4.41 it says, And many more believed because of His Word. Many more believed because of His Word. And so you see these people, there's a, there's a comparison here. You have the Samaritans that hear the words of Christ and they believe. Jesus has two days of wonderful ministry in Sychar reaching the Samaritans with the Gospel. And then He comes back up into Galilee, into His home region, and they're all about the show, but they're not so much about the Savior. The quality of faith, the quality of belief is important. What's our response? We're either of those who would reject Him, of those who would use Him, because we like the fascination, we like the show, or those who would believe in Him. What John's pushing for is that we believe in Him.